is God's word for God's people. Hear it. Now the eleven disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them. And when they had saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Let us pray. Our Lord, I pray that these words are not lofty. Uh, These words are not spoken uh, in uh, a a human way, Lord. I pray, Lord, that uh, by the power of the Spirit, Christ and Him crucified, you, Lord, would be demonstrated to your people. Lord, help this weak preacher. In Jesus' name, amen. You can be seated. Thank you. Why is it dangerous, why is it dangerous to preach the Great Commission to you? Why is it dangerous to preach the Great Commission to you? Give you a few reasons. First, it's familiar, so you might just shrug it off. Or it's too big. It's so, the magnitude is so big that you're just left paralyzed. Like, I don't know what to do. Or because it's too easy. Because you simply just push this text to missionaries. But that's not the biggest danger for you. Most people, when we go out and share our work, they want to ask the question, they ask, how dangerous is it to live in Southeast Asia? And we tell them that it is, as Mandy just shared, illegal to share the gospel. And so we might get kicked out again. We got kicked out of India, now we might get kicked out here. But then we further tell them that it is so much more dangerous for those who would follow Jesus there. They will most likely lose their livelihood, go to re-education camps or jail, maybe even lose their life. Without overstating it, no, This is true for you as well. The most dangerous part for you is actually giving your life, all of your life, to Jesus. To Jesus' great commission for Jesus' sake and the gospel. If you give all your life to Jesus and the great commission here in this nation... In this city, you will be swimming upstream. 
you will be swimming upstream. Any culture, any culture, you will be swimming upstream. Today's culture, 50 years ago, India's culture, Malaysia's culture, China culture, any culture, you will be swimming upstream. You are always swimming upstream because the kingdom of God is different. It's upside down. It's inside out. It's counterintuitive. The kingdom of God is different. Jesus is different. Giving all of your life to Jesus might cost you your life. It will most certainly cost you an American life. That's the most dangerous part. And now, not just dangerous, but the most difficult. Look with me, verse 17. Verse 17 says that there are people, after Jesus' resurrection, they worshipped him, but some doubted. Some worshipped, some doubted. And that's everyone here. Everyone here, in our hearts, in your heart, there is worship for Jesus, but then there's doubts. There's doubts. Everyone here who believes in Jesus has worship for Jesus. Oh, that's good. But there are doubts. There are doubts in your hearts. Unbelief in your heart that hinders you from fully obeying Jesus. Great commission. Now, I'm not just saying that for you or to you. I'm saying it's in here, too, in my heart. Just because I'm a missionary doesn't exclude me from having doubts. I have unbelief that Jesus is working on. I have parents who are grandparents. I have kids. I have to consider the foolishness of moving from a hostile country to a restricted country. And I ask, is he worthy? Is he worthy? Is it worth it? He is. I believe. Help my unbelief. So my aim and prayer for you today is to unfold God's word concerning the call to follow Jesus in such a way that you will take the next step, the next step of engagement in God's great purpose to make disciples here in Atlanta and other nations. Because Atlanta and the U.S., that's a nation here and the nations. And for you to, and I to take this step, these next step or two steps, maybe a little turn in the heart, we need to see three things. Three things we need to see that we live for a different king. We live for a different king. We live for a different task. And we live for a different goal. So first, let's see that we live for a different king. We, we see Jesus' kingship and authority in verse 18. Look with me here. It says, And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. 
When I talk about authority, I mean the right, the right and the power to hold sway in any given relationship or sphere. So as a father, I have authority over my children, but not necessarily over your children or over you. As a teacher, you have authority over your students, but not necessarily over the parents. If you were a CIO, you would have authority over the information technology department, but you don't necessarily have authority over the CEO, which is the company. So when we think about authority, it is limited authority according to the sphere of command. Jesus here, what is his sphere? Well, what is it? Jesus is declaring that he has absolute authority over all things. Jesus' fear is all authority. It's everywhere, in heaven and on earth. He has all authority in heaven. He rules who's in and who's out and how heaven should be run. He has authority on earth that not a square inch is outside his sovereign rule and reign. It includes all nations and all peoples in those nations. This is the authority of Jesus Christ. It's a pretty bold statement, a pretty audacious statement, right? Right? I mean, authority scares people, unless you're an authority. Ah. See, I've seen this in my own life, and I have seen in many other conversations that I've had with people, they've seen their work friends, they move up positions, and then these friends, they become more power-hungry. We all believe if, well, if we were ones in power, if we were ones on top, then we can wield that power. It's power. Well, like the ring and the Lord of the Rings, no mortal man or woman can master it. But it masters you. This has been a problem with the human race ever since the fall. The maxim goes, power corrupts, absolute power corrupts absolutely. Well, let's put light in this, uh, in this text because it sounds like if absolute power corrupts absolutely, and we've seen this over and over, think of Jesus' declaration of having all authority. Now, we here are obviously at the last paragraph of the Gospel of Matthew. And if you have read up to this point, really, this statement should not surprise you. Narrative after narrative after narrative, Jesus shows, performs, demonstrates his authority. He has authority over sickness. He has authority over the winds and the waves. He has authority over Satan and demons. He has authority over the law, the teachers of the day, the temple, the government. He has authority over marriage, gender, Sabbath, recreation. He has authority to forgive sins. He, most importantly, has authority over human hearts. So, Jesus unveiled his authority over his three years public ministry. But, he, but here's why Jesus 
authority is different. And here's why we should think it different and you should follow him. When Jesus got to the top, the top of the ladder, whatever, it wasn't a crown. It wasn't a throne. It was a cross. It was a cross. It was through sacrifice, not a sword, that Jesus' authority reigns. The cross was before the crown. Death before the resurrection. Meaning, he didn't use his authority to take advantage, his own advantage like we do. He used his authority and he went to the cross for the church. He displayed his authority by dying for those who were against him. That's us. That's us before we recognize our, our folly ways. Think with me, what is sin but rebellion against God's authority? And, and think with me, the picture of Jesus' death hung on, on a criminal cross under the sign, King of the Jews, and on his lips, forgiveness. Out of his mouth, forgiveness. Which would mean nothing unless he resurrected. And here, he's resurrected. So, we need to put these two pictures together. Absolute sacrifice, absolute authority. Doesn't this change? Doesn't this change the appearance of Jesus' authority of all authority claim? He not only has absolute power over you, which he does, but absolute sacrificial love for you as well. By going through the cross to the resurrection, Jesus put all things under him, including sin and death, which were our problems. But he took it on as his responsibility. I mean, even, isn't that a good leader? If, you, if your boss sees you having a problem and he takes the responsibility for it, that's what Jesus did in a magnificent way. Jesus has staked his absolute claim and authority on the church. The cross, the cross secured his people. The resurrection secured his kingship over the church. Now, there is authority and power in Jesus' promise, which is, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. Living for Jesus, King Jesus, and his great commission isn't a man-made operation, nor is it something that our own willpower can lead us to obedience. Jesus' authority is resurrected power. Now, back to verse 17. Uh, where are you, listener? Where are you? Do you see Jesus' authority as beautiful? And do you worship him and give your life to Jesus? Or 
Are you doubting? Are you doubting? Skeptical in Jesus and his resurrected authority. I encourage you to come under Jesus and his beautiful authority. Come and follow him and be his disciple. Be his disciple. And if you are, and if you become his disciple, or if you are his disciple, then Jesus' authority takes us to live for a different task. Jesus' authority takes us to live for a different task, and that task is to make disciples. Jesus commands his disciples to go make disciples. Verse 19 says, Go, therefore, and make disciples. This is the task of the church. This is the task of the church. Our passage starts out with 11 disciples. This is key. This is key. This is key in two ways. First, it tells us how Jesus went about making disciples. And second, it tells us about what a disciple of Jesus is. Jesus started his ministry, public ministry, when he was about 30 years old. He had been a carpenter all his working life. And you know what was the first task, one of the first tasks that Jesus did in his ministry? Well, he goes out and he gets disciples. And you can read about this in Matthew 4. He walks up to a bunch of fishermen and the first guys, the first guys were at work trying to make ends meet. And Jesus gets their attention and says, follow me and I will make you a fisher of men kind of odd, but it worked. And, and then the second bunch of guys just finished their work and they're cleaning and mending their nets. And Jesus says to these guys, and he called to them and they started to follow him. Here's the point. Jesus seeks people. Jesus seeks people. In the, in the Bible, the word church never means a building. It never did. It means a people, a flock, a bride. Ed Sessler, church planner expert, he says, straight and plain, says the task of church planning is to reach people. And I would simply say the task of the church is to reach people. When my team and I uh, went, we're thinking and dreaming about planning a city center church in Bangalore. Oh, again, nine, nine, ten years ago. What was the first task we did? We'll seek to reach people. So we had started a business to get into the country, but it was more than that. We wanted a place to meet people, new people, different people, people who are skeptics, believers, and anyone in between. And over the next, over the months, uh, we made relationships with hundreds of people. And in our apartment buildings, we went out and talked to people. And we built relationships. And we thought of other what we called fishing ponds. Then we needed a place where these people, these relationships, were, were, able, be, were able to be taken from where they were to where Jesus wanted them to be. And so... We made pathways to Bible studies, and that took a couple years, 
But by God's grace, at the end, we started beginning to think about what does it look like? What does it look like for this community to be a worshiping community? And so the first step in making disciples is reaching people, reaching people, inviting people. But the task isn't done. The task isn't done. Making disciples is a, is a relational, lifelong task. It's like having kids. It's like having, you, you have a kid, they're with you. Lifelong. And disciple making is like kids because that's actually where your first disciple making it's the primary way of making disciples. And, 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 and here, we have 11 men, uh, and they were disciples. They were with Jesus. They followed Jesus. So, the command, again, is straightforward. In verse 19, it says, go, therefore, and make disciples. What, what does that say? It says, you, who are disciples... Go make disciples. And today, right now, Jesus is saying the same thing to you. You who are disciples, go make disciples. What is a disciple? Well, let's look again at these first disciples. They teach us what a disciple of Jesus is. When Jesus followed, when, when Jesus called them to follow, uh, the text says in Matthew 4, it says, immediately they left their nets and followed him. So a disciple is someone who leaves everything to follow Jesus anywhere. Someone who leaves everything to follow Jesus anywhere. Let's call people. Let's call people to leave everything and follow Jesus anywhere. Let's call people to, to surrender to the lordship of Jesus, who has absolute authority. We must not minimize the magnitude of following Jesus. Just getting these guys' shoes, okay, sandals. At the very time, they had left everything. They left their comfort and everything that was familiar to them. They left their careers, at least temporarily, and the security which they brought them. They left their property and belongings. They were lower, fairly poor men, but they did have boats and nets, and they left it. And they left their family. As it says, they left their father. They left their security, not knowing where they would go. They were called to leave behind their sin, whether that be self-righteousness or self-indulgence. And ultimately, the call of Jesus to leave behind everything, which is most clearly heard in the words that he said, is, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up the cross and follow me. In a world, in our world, that revolves around self, protect yourself, comfort yourself, love yourself, promote yourself, take care of yourself. Jesus says, die to yourself. Jesus, an obscure rabbi, from their perspective, turns to his disciples and tells them to renounce everything 
again, a little odd. And today is no different. The call to follow Jesus and to be his disciple is to renounce yourself. It is to come to the cross and die. As the Apostle Paul says, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I live, but Christ who lives in me. And this is by faith in Christ. This is, this is very different than just asking Jesus in your heart, walking down an aisle, signing a card, or even just simply making a decision and then going about business as usual. No, being a disciple of Jesus involves everything. Everything is on the table. Remember, Jesus has authority over everything, including your very life. Now, you must feel the weight of this. This is what a disciple is. You leave everything and you follow him. So back to the tension here, that verse 17, back to the tension. What are you unwilling to let go because you are doubting Jesus? Take time to confess this to Jesus and come to him. And for encouragement, for encouragement, where are you worshiping Jesus and seeing his grace in you to work through you? Take time to thank Jesus. Now, to assist us in this discipleship and to direct us in discipleship, Jesus gives us two instructions, uh, two instructions, two practices uh, on discipleship making, which are baptism and the Lord's Supper. Sorry, not the Lord's Supper. Lord's Supper is awesome, but baptism and teaching to observe all he commanded. So baptism and teaching to observe. Let's not read these instructions also even individualistically. They're, they were never meant to be that way. It's, these are to be done in the church, here in this local body, the church, in this community of faith. Again, so what, ask the question, what is the concept, your concept of church? Is it a building or is it a thing to do? Or is it something like a learning center? Let me suggest that the church is a place where disciples are being made under the lordship of Christ. And it takes a church to grow a Christian. So let's see how these two instructions assist and direct the church. First, baptism. Jesus instructs them to be baptized. Baptize them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Here, baptism focuses on the name Um, the name or identity. Baptism is a covenant sign that marks out those who belong to the visible church. And historically, including the early church in the book of Acts, baptism was a church ordinance. It was done, it was performed in the community of faith. An individual, a family, when baptized, they would be received into the community of faith. Other religions know this well. I've listened to many, many membership interviews when I lived in India. Most people were coming from a Hindu background. And do you know when the Hindu parents begin to really take 
the child's conversion seriously? It's at the point of baptism. The parents knew that when one was baptized, they are renouncing and rejecting Hinduism and the Hindu gods and receiving something else. And often, it was received with persecution. You are given a new identity in baptism. You are given the family name. It is as if the triune God takes a hot metal iron bar and brands you as a new disciple and says, this is mine. This is mine. Leave the old. Enter the new. Reject the former ways of life. Live the new. Renounce the idols of the past that have given you identity and be renewed in the grace of the triune God that sings over you. And here's your part. Here's your part. Here is where the church makes disciples. We can all remind each other, remind each other about the grace which baptism points. If you're struggling, the worst thing you can do is to move away from the community. It's the worst thing. It never works. God has given you other disciples of Jesus to encourage you in your baptism, reminding you that you have a good, good father, reminding you that you have been loved so deeply by the sacrificial love of the son, reminding you that you're not alone, but that the spirit is with you, that the Holy Spirit lives inside you, giving you power to put off and to put on. He gives grace for you to fly to the cross power to be made new, and all of this is reminding the promises that baptism points to can be done by your words to the fellow disciple. So let me ask you here, here, who can you, as you look around, who can you encourage in their baptism and the promises of God so that they may worship Jesus more? And secondly, Jesus instructs us to teach them to observe all that I have commanded you. What a task for the church as well. This is for you as well. Here, we must read all of what Jesus says. He doesn't say, teach them all that I've commanded. He didn't say that. There's a great difference. When... We were in India. Mandy, my wife, would whistle to the parrots outside. And the parrots would echo what my wife was whistling. And so it would go back and forth, and it was very cute. But you can't teach a parrot to observe them. That is, parrots will not act upon the command. They will not repent and worship Jesus Parents can recite, but they can't truly be disciples. I wonder how many of our methods are simply forming parrots and not disciples of Jesus. A disciple 
seeks to observe all of what Jesus commanded. Again, here's where the community of faith, the church, is a means of grace. Here is your part, again. For example, I went to Reformed Theological Seminary. The school is all about grace. The teachers teach the doctrines of grace. And for a test, I could have told you what grace was and where to find it in the Bible. And much of this is me being a parrot. You tell me, I will tell you back. I, you tell me, I will tell you back. Now, no offense to my teachers or the school or Jonathan. Because you know where I really learned to observe the commands to forgive and to live by grace? This church, Christ Community Church, week in and week out, living life with the Holtons and the Fishers and the Falcons. None of those people are here anymore, but let's see. The Mobleys and the Lucases and the Skeens and their boys and the Stuckards. So there you go. Thank you. And on and on I could go. Grace learned and observed in community. It was in the context of the small group, a group of men encouraging, challenging, even rebuking me, driving me to extend grace for what, the, what grace has been extended to me. Grace lived out on Sunday morning, receiving the word, receiving the sacraments, resting in grace. I learned grace when I started to date and to marry Mandy. That could be a whole nother sermon. That's when grace really sunk in. God has given us fellow disciples to be discipled. So let me ask you again in this community, who can you challenge to observe the commands of Jesus and live under his authority as they are struggling with doubt? Making disciples... Making disciples is hard work. These tasks are the grit and the, the daily grind. And, and like a worker, like a worker in a factory line, it's easy to forget. It's easy to forget the new shiny automobile at the end of the line. We need to remember then that we are also living for a different goal. We're living for a different goal. So Jesus commands here, again, go therefore make disciples of all nations. Of, of all nations. So you see the first word, go. Go. That, that word is intentional. When someone says go, you, you get up. You get up, right? You, intentional. It's a purpose of, of movement. And, and Jesus is saying, go as you go. Live with this goal in mind. Live with this goal in mind. And in the front of that mind is all the nations. The nations. Jesus is saying, have your eyes up and, and go. So going starts where you are, right? Uh, when you wake up, discipling yourself in the word, reminding you of who Jesus is. 
and, and, and reminding that you are filled with the Holy Spirit to go and discipling your kids and telling them of your, their covenant identity. And, and, and there is, is a going that's already happening. And then you, you walk out the door and you go. You go out of your homes. You go out of your dorm rooms. You go meet people. You go build connections. You go eat. We go to workplaces. We go to athletic competitions. And all of this, all of this going, everything in life is with this in, going intentionally. This will transform your life, asking Jesus, saying, here I am. I want to go. Lead me. Lead me today. Every part of my life, I want to make disciples right here where I am. Jesus, here's my life. Here's my family. Here's my future. Here I am. But then Jesus does say, adds to the nations. He adds to the nations. Sometimes uh, when my girls ask me, Dad, where are we? Sometimes I say, the earth. And they say, Dad, really? Come on. Uh, or sometimes when uh, we are talking about where we are, one of the girls will say, well, we're at home in Decatur, in Atlanta, uh, in the United States, in North America, on the earth, in the universe. What is that about right here? And, and, and talking like this reminds us that we're a bigger, a part of a, a bigger world than we think we are. Because when, when, when you are adding, when you are, when, because when you're adding and making disciples, who make disciples, see, these disciples then form other churches who are multiplying that make other churches in other regions in other parts of the city in other parts of this nation or or to the nations see as you are looking up and you go and you say oh there's delk road or oh there's marietta square or oh there's the people of india or oh there's there's the people of southeast asia or, oh, there's the nations. You look up and you see, oh. Meaning, Jesus' goal is much bigger than where you are right now. So, include this in your prayer. He says, you pray, Lord, here I am. Here I am. I want to go make disciples. Lead me. I want to go wherever you call me so that the, the, the nations will be Disciple, all the nations. And you pray. When we were kicked out of India uh, in, in May, I mean, I left. I had no call. Uh, again, this was, uh, this was everything. This was everything, and I, I had nothing. I had nothing. And so I had no call, no place, but I had this. I had this one exception. I had this prayer. I said, Jesus, Jesus. You said to me, come follow me. Where to next? I pray the same thing for you, that you would pray. And let's pray to receive this word. Lord, we pray that, I pray, uh, that the Spirit would move in the hearts of your people, that they would take that next step, uh, whatever that looks like, 
Again, it could be down the road. Uh, it could be talking to a child in a family. It could be, it could be overseas, especially you young people. Pray for the young people that they would get a vision for the nations and that they would go as well. I pray, Lord, that whatever that next step is, that would be very clear to your people, your people, individual. May the Spirit do uh, individual uh, parcels, individual mail to each person here, that they would see and they would, they would, their hearts would be more awakened to worship Jesus and they would go. And you would give them the words to say and know that they are absolutely providentially protected because behold, you are always with them. In Christ's name, amen.